welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is an absolutely seminal figure in the rise and current state, we'll call it almost dominance, Matt, of the genre of podcasting. And our guest, Matt Gorley, is an actor, producer, writer, musician, comedian, about to be a father. And Matt has played uh, an incredibly large role going back about 15 years in the rise of the genre. Um, those of you that listen to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, he is the producer of that show and then on air is one of Conan's two sidekicks. So we listen to you, Matt, every week. Uh, and it was my son's idea to have you on Great Minds. And I thought it was a great idea and I'm very grateful to you for doing this. Oh, thank you. And it sounds like your son has a great mind. He, he does indeed, vastly superior to that of his father. <laughs> I don't know. As, it's as, nice as, to be here. Great. So Matt, uh, there are so many places to start with you. And I, I think this one's going to be a little bit of a peripatetic conversation. Uh, we share an affinity and affection for James Bond. So I oh, certainly want nice. to talk about your great podcast, James Bonding. I'm but, wearing a deep cut t-shirt reference to James Bond. I don't know if you can see it, but it see. says Hildebrand Rarities, which goes back to like the Fleming novels, if you really want to get nerdy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, we can talk about Fleming and we will. But I, I saw two things, Matt, that jumped out. Uh, and neither has anything to do with each other. Neither has anything to do with our, the focal point of our conversation today. But one is I understand you and then girlfriend, now your wife, Amanda, both played costume characters at Disney. That's correct. Yeah. And I also, oh, well, I, I guess I was not a costume character. I did more kind of, uh, comedy and improv shows and she was a straight up princess, you know, like a Cinderella, that kind of thing. Okay, so yeah. I want to come back to that. And I'm going to give you a choice here, Matt. We have a very, okay. de very democratic here on Great Mind. <laughs> okay. The other thing I saw that jumped out was that you won a contest. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think you know where we're going now uh, to imitate the sound of a flushing toilet. Yeah, it's a real point of pride in my past and my resume. Uh, it, it's just this thing that uh, this company, Fluid Master, was putting on a promotion and they kind of reached out to a bunch of improv groups. That, I think this was in the mid-90s. And uh, I, you, all you had to do is leave a message on an answering machine. And for some reason, the director of my group said, you should do this. I did it. I went down. It was like six of us. And I somehow won and then uh, ended up hosting the competition for a number of years after that, too. And um, yeah, you're really hitting on the, um, the best parts of my yeah, resume. Yeah, these are the high notes. Uh, no question. <laughs> I, I will share with you, and we're going to talk about... Uh, I definitely want to get back to Ian Fleming, but I will share with you that uh, I mentioned before we got on the air that one of our properties is in London. And uh, one year we did our opening opening night or closing our closing night dinner at the House of Lords, uh, oh, Westminster. Wow. Wow. And in the House of Lords, um, they have uh, the very first crapper Na named, named after, after? Tom John. Thomas Crapper. Thomas Crapper. I have oh seen the Crapper. God. It is as unimpressive as you would think it would be. I can't. Uh, I can't wait to hear how this ties back to Ian Fleming. Well, I, I, I don't think it does, which is the oh. para, the the, para, <laughs> okay. the, para, the peripatetic nature of our conversation. I see. Um, and and you also and tell me about working at Disney because that must have been in many ways a tremendous training ground for you. Yeah, actually, it was because. Uh, I'd I grew up in, in the shadow of Disney going there as a kid all the time, but I never thought of it as someplace I wanted to work. And when you're in your, you know, twenties, it ended up being a wonderful job because the work I was doing was through a performers union. So yeah, we were employed by Disney, but it wasn't quite like the, the general population of employees, kind of like how my wife was a character. She was more in that general population. So we had full benefits and a really good hourly wage. And you were working with all your best improv comedy buddies. And so many friendships were fostered there. In fact, really the friendships and routines that my friends and I used for my first podcast, Super Ego, came out of just goofing around during the breaks uh, at Disney. And so it was a really wonderful place to kind of to get started. I was also 
teaching at the time. So between those two jobs, it was kind of my first taste of, you know, solvency and independence. And I, I look back at it very fondly. And I know you majored at Cal State in Long Beach and theater and did a lot of performing um, and have been on stage, you know, pretty much your whole life. Did that start when you were even younger? Were you a kid who was like to be in front of the family on a holiday or, you know, were you out there as a kid or did it develop a little bit later in life? It actually, I was just realizing this a few months ago, came from theme parks because I would always ask to go to Universal Studios on my birthday and my dad would take me and I saw this Wild West stunt show that they had with just three actors. And, you know, two of them were just kind of heels and the straight guy stuntman. But there was this comedian who is also a stuntman named Bob Rochelle. And he came out and he just floored me. And I, I just sort of like woke up and went, wait, you can do this for a living? Not thinking like a theme park performance job was a career, but just doing comedy. And so I went straight home, organized a little comedy stunt show for my neighborhood, cast some kids and put it on. And it was a, a debacle and nothing like what I saw in my mind. But that, I think, is what set me on my path. Fantastic. And early on, uh, comedy sports, was that one of your early endeavors along with... Uh... Was that with Jeremy or Jeremy? You, yeah, you and Jeremy actually, hooked up around that time. That's how I met him. Um, so Comedy Sports is an improv group throughout the country. Uh, it's not quite as prominent now. Um, it's pretty just straightforward improv. But they had a program when I was in high school that had just started where it was kind of like a varsity sport. So you would put together a comedy sports troupe at your high school and it play other high schools in mock comedy competitions. They weren't really competitions, but it was framed that way. And it was through that that the, the professional group pulled me in a couple years later, but they had to wait for me to grow. I was really tiny and I looked like a little kid. So I got a call saying, hey, do you look anything like an adult now? I think I do. Yeah, well, come down and play with us. And that's how I got into that show and then met all the people that I would work with at Disney, Jeremy Carter and Mark McConville from Super Ego. Fantastic. So your career is so interesting in that between what you did as a performer, uh, at Disney, um, things like comedy sports. And you also uh, were, I think, involved in all the big improv groups, Second City, UCB. Uh, that's really the Aberdeen training ground, I think, in so many ways today for great comedic minds. I know UCB in New York's having a lot of trouble, and I'm not sure if LA is back open yet. But I'd love to talk about, you know, improv and that whole genre, which is responsible for producing so much incredible talent in this country. Yeah, and I was involved with those groups very peripherally, meaning I never went through their training programs, but I, I did a lot of shows there, whether they're one-offs or part of series. And then we performed my first podcast, Super Ego, it has a live version. We had a residency at UCB for a while as well. Um, and in many ways comedy sports is kind of looked at as a little bit of a, I say this with love, kind of a fluffier, more family-friendly type of improv. And when, and Second City had been around forever, but when UCB really came on the rise, that was the hip scene and place to be. And I'm kind of glad I had a taste of both, to be honest, because I think, you know, learning a lot about long form is important, but uh, the short form of improv teaches you an economy in performing that uh, I'm thankful that I have, you know, it's, it's a real good way to get to the point. Not, not like I'm doing with this uh, explanation right now, but you, you know what I mean? I, I, it's a perfect explanation and, <laughs> and channel 101, another great training ground. Yeah, that really was, in fact, that it's funny how it all ties together. So Channel 101 was a kind of film festival that people could submit fake TV pilots that had to be under five minutes. And then there would be a live screening every month and the audience would vote on which sort of shows they wanted to see continue the next month. So your show could get canceled or it could get renewed month by month. And Jeremy, who I had met through comedy sports and was my comedic partner at the time, we were doing this show called Ultra Force, which was like a, a satire of this old movie called Mega Force. And we put so much production value into it that we couldn't sustain it and we got renewed. But then we decided to kill the characters because we just couldn't keep it up. And it was that reason that I said to him, let's do a podcast because they were new on the scene. 
and we don't have to do any production value. The listener will fill all that in because it's all just audio and I can do sound effects and edit and stuff like that. But the, the listener fills in the blanks and it was really just the perfect medium. Fantastic. So when I was trying to figure out sort of what the entree of our conversation uh, should be, I went back and did a lot of reading about the golden age of radio. What's that old radio doing back there, Bergen? Well, that's what we started out on, that kind of a radio. Yeah, yes, but this is not just an ordinary radio now. Well, it has an attachment. You see, scientists have insisted that sounds do not die. The vibrations keep traveling through space. Aren't they dying? Yes. And if we have an instrument sensitive enough, we can pick up sounds of the past. This machine will do it. <laughs> and there was a time in the 20s and 30s in particular when radio was truly, truly, really through the 40s, the dominant medium in America. And there were a lot of advances in technology. There were big, big networks back then that uh, have long been gone. NBC actually had the red and the blue. There were two different networks that they had. Oh, wow. CBS had the Columbia Broadcasting System, the Mutual Broadcasting System, all launched in the 20s and 30s. And about 82% of America was listening to radio for prolonged periods on a daily basis. And of course, in the 50s, television changed that. But all the biggest stars that we know uh, were all on radio whether it was during the depression uh, uh, and comedy was a break for people. And some of the stuff, Matt, was incredibly cheeky and ahead of its time, uh, much more so than you would expect. Looking today uh, to where we are now, where uh, podcasting is in its halcyon days, uh, has blown up, I think, much greater than you could have imagined when you launched Super Ego in 2006. Right. Um, do you ever think about, you know, how we've sort of gone back to where we were? Do you look at any of that stuff or do you draw upon any of that? And were any of those early stars, those comedy stars, folks that you liked or listened to or may have influenced you in some way? Yeah, certainly. It was hard not to be conscious of the fact that podcast was supplanting radio. And I, to me, it was just like the sooner the better. Let's get this. It was it was inevitable to me. It, I don't mean to say that I could have foreseen this revolution, but once I discovered the medium and, and its use and the democratization of it for everyone to be able to use and for better or for worse, I just was like, let's speed this along. Come on, let's, let's get going. This is fantastic. I love the medium. And I definitely thought of things, you know, like even how the Marx brothers had radio shows for a while and, and Lucille Ball would show up on radio shows. People, often kind of paralleled superego to something like Firesign Theater, which we've all come to love and respect, but it wasn't something that was in the forefront of our mind. For me, it was more listening to audio and vinyl of Monty Python and, and specifically their audio comedy and how it had to work just, just for audio and it couldn't be visual. Or if it was meant to be visual, it was the absence of the visual that was the joke. And I think that had a lot to do with what we were interested in. And it, it just, it felt somehow, I, it was by mix of my favorite two things. It felt like a new and exciting medium, but with the vestiges of a tried and true medium that everyone in Superego loved and respected, but also naturally felt a little bit removed from because just because of when we were born. So it was kind of the past and the future and none of the present. And that was exciting to us. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble give a whistle and this'll help things turn out for the best and always look on the bright side of life always look on the light side of life I was listening on the way in this morning to one of your episodes from the Andy Daly pilot podcast, <laughs> yeah. a live show at the Largo, <laughs> where you had an all-star cast of uh, Scott Ackerman and Paul F. Tompkins and a lot of the other, you know, your contemporaries uh, who really are the, 
the incredible stars of the podcasting era in the modern age. And I love that you had somebody playing Werner Herzog. You had somebody playing Pope Benedict. Uh, I found back in 19, in the 40s, a radio show, You Can't Do Business with Hitler. <laughs> and I found it surprising. At least I was surprised that there was something. Hell that went to Mercedes and Volkswagen. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Uh, uh, that was that. And I did learn this morning because I love the Doughboys. Oh, yeah. I did learn this morning that Einstein Bagel is owned by a German company whose founders were very big funders of the Nazi party oh, going back to boy. the 30s, which is a little bit of a faux oh. pas for a, a, a bagel <laughs> chain named Einstein. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Oh, boy. Um, but <laughs> the, the cheekiness and the comedy, the sophistication of the comedy uh, in podcasting is really incredible. And I think that's where the best stuff is these days. I, yeah, I think for my money, the, it, it certainly is a place where a lot of uh, original voices have popped up. And I think they were voices that couldn't find a way through the mainstream channel. So just like Super Ego, we didn't have an outlet. And so we just did our own thing and nobody was listening. And that was a blessing because we weren't censoring ourselves. We weren't trying to think of like, what comedy should we be doing? We were just doing the stuff that would make us laugh, never thinking it was really going to gain traction. It was just something we were doing for fun. Then Paul F. Tompkins, whom you mentioned, joined us and really brought us an audience. And by then we were locked into our style and it somehow worked. And then we weren't self-conscious about doing kind of uh, weird non sequitur and absurd stuff that otherwise I think we would have thought twice about thinking we needed to uh, just appeal to a bigger audience or something. So, so let's get into Super Ego a little bit more. And that was really your first big, big step forward in the genre. Talk about the podcasting landscape back in 2006, a little bit different. Oh, it was so different. In fact, I always joke about this, but I think Super Ego must be the only podcast that is an analog podcast because I would record on this digital music recorder. It was like an eight track music recorder, but I would then pipe it into my desktop computer using analog RCA cables so it never remained truly digital. And then I would edit on computer. And it was almost like that, that kind of that transitionary time of analog music recording into digital recording. And uh, so I was very minimally functional in terms of editing software for me at that time. And I was just learning the ropes. And we were using two random microphones that I had. I think one was a condenser and one was like a, just a standard stage vocal mic. And you know, the, all the no-nos that audiophiles would tell you not to do, but we didn't care. And in a way we still don't, but it, it just was, it was hell to publish podcasts because I didn't know coding. And at the time, GarageBand and Apple was really functional in helping you build that. But if you needed to answer any question outside of that, you were on your own. And I would stay up nights waiting for things to update. And it was my own hell, but it was, it was a real learning curve. And that was the year the iPhone was introduced. That's right. Yeah, I think that came out a few months after we started podcasting. So podcasting at that time truly was for the iPod. And you would download it onto your iTunes on your desktop and then sync your iPod to your desktop. So there was no form of streaming. It was all downloaded and transferred to your iPod, which is how I listened. And then even when iPhones first came out, I don't believe they had a podcast app. You still had to use iTunes and it would be in there, but you had to, you had to have forethought in order to listen to podcasts. If you were heading out somewhere, you needed them with you, like your car keys or your wallet. Right, right. There was no boom, boom, like there is today from no, you know, Bluetooth, Bluetooth in your car and, you know, yeah. in under a second. Yeah. And, and the business then it was, it wasn't really a business. No, it was not. The The earliest model I can remember, I used to listen to the Ricky Gervais podcast in 2005. And they, they had a thing where they eventually started selling them as audio books through iTunes. And that's how they were able to make some money. But it was very rare at the time for advertisers to be buying something. And even if they did, it was more like the radio shows of the golden age of just kind of this show is sponsored by, you know, and right. that's it. There weren't right. commercials. 
which yeah. was the golden age of radio where you had, yeah. you know, the GE and Bell and, you know, Chevron and companies like that with that, with it, it was their programming as well as the early days of TV with like, you know, Uncle Milty and Texaco Star Theater. Yeah, in fact, uh, Andy Daly and I have been doing uh, some more recording and we notice every time we look up something on IMDb that an old actor may have starred in something like the Schlitz, uh, you know, theater hour or something like that. Just the most disconnected brand with whatever the show would be. It's hilarious. Right. That That's great. That's a that's a my uh, is a wonderful, uh, uh, you know lake to catch fish in as is the tobacco sponsorships of athletes, of athletes, <laughs> yes, you know, so counterintuitive Mickey Mantle loves Chesterfields. Um, so super ego has a great, great run. And at, at some point along with Matt Mira, you come up with an idea for James bonding. What made that funnier is I could see you inhaling for so long. <laughs> I have mouth horns. Uh, welcome to episode. Yeah, it was around the time Skyfall came out, and uh, we didn't really know each other, but both of us we knew were huge James Bond fans, and he was on a show on G Four called Attack of the Show as a kind of tech correspondent comedian, and he had me on. We did a kind of roundtable talk of James Bond as that movie was coming out and he had the idea of let's go see Skyfall together and should we do a podcast and we got together over uh, like a breakfast I think back then it was just so easy to just say yes and then in a day you've assembled the artwork the resources and recording and it's done it and it seems like things have gotten so complicated now to the point of being detrimental but I really I really look back fondly on how quickly you just throw up a podcast. You still can, but everybody seems to take it a little too seriously now. And that was yeah. really fun. And the format of the show, you would discuss a different aspect of Bond with a guest. And and really, you go into almost every aspect of it, which as a Bond fan, I love. I've listened to every one. And I can't tell you how much, as a Bond fan, I enjoy it. Yeah, it's nice to go. We've gone through the movies. We've done fantasy drafts, you know, a group of people like a sports draft where you get to draft all the different characters, henchmen, actors that play Bond, and everybody competes to create the best James Bond movie possible. And then the audience votes. We're actually hoping to do uh, another episode or two coming up for the new movie. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm about to have a daughter, so it's not great timing, but we're going to, we're going to give it a shot. Is there a release date yet for No Time to Die? Yeah, in the U.S., it's October 8th. Fantastic. Um, so back to Ian Fleming, where yeah. we started off a while ago. <laughs> There's a fabulous place that I've been lucky enough to go to twice now, and I hope to go back. It's called Goldeneye. Oh, you've been, yeah, in Jamaica, his, yeah. Uh, his estate, yeah. So that was his home, exactly right. And it's owned now by Chris Blackwell, who's mm. an icon. He founded Island Records. yeah. And uh, the Fleming Villa, where he actually lived, is there. And I've sat at his desk. Huh. Um, and uh, he wrote all 13 Bond novels there. And what's fascinating about the place is you really see when you're there where a lot of the vision comes from hmm. in a very visceral way. You know, the image of Bond, you know, the early Sean Connery or later Roger Moore, you know, on a boat, you know, weaving through, you know, uh, um, you know, very, uh, 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 I can't say, I don't know, I'm struggling for the right word, but, you know, just, you know, there's all these little rivers and outlets and coves and, um, and you can really see, and of course, the Ursula Andress very famous scene was right there. Um, but it's completely worth going and you would really enjoy it. Oh, I would kill. I, I I hope and plan to go there someday. And it's it. He's never been more a case of the the, the right which you know because it's so clear that he's, you know, writing about specific fish that lived on the beach and the octopus that lived on the beach right in front of his estate, Golden Eye, or down to what he would eat for breakfast. His recipe for scrambled eggs. He would, you know, put spell out completely in his book or. The fact that he was smoking literally 70 cig cigarettes a day, drinking almost a bottle of, of gin, you know, all, all these things. Bond was just a, a shadow away, of a way from himself. 
and watching and with today's you know political and social landscape watching you know going back to dr no the very first bond movie and those others i'm not sure that all of his behavior with women would pass muster today oh certainly not certainly not i <laughs> it's just no way i mean even the books themselves in light of today's world are fairly problematic it's just a matter of whether the reader wants to read them you know, in in the context of the past or in the context of the contemporary. But yeah, Fleming himself, uh, I love his work, but he seemed like a real bastard. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, very often in those early films, I think he would not even know the names of these women as he was throwing them down on the bed. Oh, no. Oh, Mr. Yeah. Bond. Yeah, it was he was definitely playing out his fantasies within the pages of those books and then the movies themselves. Um it's uh, that's why I find him such an interesting character. It's it's easier when a character when it, well a, a historical figure from the past is so far removed that his antiquated ways, his problematic ways aren't as threatening to a modern day because they they actually seem antiquated and you you're relieved that some of those that some of the treatment has moved on in some way i know it's not enough but um it does feel like good this guy belongs in the past because he's he's historical now you know and it's it's a fascinating thing both to read his work for the fiction and the narrative but also to understand the man and the time it's it's a rich field, let's just say that. It certainly is. And all credit to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson for yeah. there isn't another franchise that goes back that far no, that is so still impressive. as hot today as it ever was. And still in the same family since Dr. No. That's uh, We're coming up on 60 years and it's always in one form or another been controlled by the Broccoli family. It's amazing. And, and just two generations. Thoughts on Daniel Craig leaving Love. the franchise. Oh, I I mean, I understand why it's time to move on, but he, I, I have to say, I think is my favorite Bond and I adore Roger Moore. You know, he was my era's Bond. I, of course, you got to tip your hat and love Sean Connery. I love them all, but I, what Daniel Craig and, and Barbara Broccoli did with this new version of the franchise is so wonderful. You know, in a non-gratuitous way, I'm going to completely agree with you. <laughs> and it took a while to come around because I revered, you know, Sean Connery in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I remember in that very last scene of the last Bond film where he gets in the car, the, they restore the old car. Mm -hmm. And he gets in to, I guess it was a DB5 yeah, back the DB5, then. Aston and, Martin, yeah. and turns the key. And, you know, I, you know, I, you know, the tears are going down my cheek, like a, like a, like a four-year-old. I know. And I have to say, speaking of, you know, Fleming's problematic views and stuff, what Broccoli and Wilson and Daniel Craig have managed to, how they've managed to update it and make this character still work in today's age without losing all the things that make Bond great is a huge testament. I think that franchise could have died multiple times and almost did. And the fact that it keeps getting revived is a real testament to its just its popularity, but also how they've been able to massage it as time goes on. Okay, and I have to ask you before we move on: top Bond villain? Wow. Uh, well, okay. My Bond picks are never, you know, the most popular. I I, I do love Blofeld as just your classic megalomaniacal mastermind which, I also, which which blofeld uh, well I, I i have such a soft spot for donald pleasance because of other films he's been in the halloween series even the great escape and i love his kind of soft meek blofeld for some reason and it's the first one where you ever see his face i love the ones where you don't see his face but it's also a little hard to really grasp that blofeld because he's almost kind of a secondary character until you only live twice um and then i love lachif from skyfall I mean, sorry, from Casino Royale, but I also love Silva from Skyfall. Yeah. Uh, let me think. There's so many. Oh, Christopher Walken in A View to a Kill, a movie which many people don't like, which I love. Uh, I think he's brilliant in that. How about you? Well, I, I you know, 
I was a real, real, uh, you know, lover of the, all the early bonds and all the Sean Q only lived twice and from Russia with love and, and all of, all of the characters and the villains there. But I think Christoph Waltz was so great as in the modern incarnation of Blofeld. And I, I absolutely love Spectre and, you know, culminating with that last scene that we talked about in the DV5. But I thought that was as, as good a movie as I've ever seen. Oh, that's nice to hear because I think Spectre sometimes gets it's in the shadow of Skyfall. And I watched it again the other day and I, I was thinking how his blow felt kind of didn't stay with me. But then I watched it this time and it, it actually resonated with me a little bit more. And then he's in the new one. You know, he's I heard playing I a small heard. Part, I don't tell. I don't want to know anything. I, I, I'm sure I you know, know the whole. I don't want to know. know. Don't tell me. I, I don't know either. I'm staying spoiler free. I got to have some surprises in this world. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So. Also around that time of James Bonding, you start doing some work in our industry, in the commercial world, and do a lot of work for Volkswagen, and I know you've worked for a lot of other brands. Talk about that part of your career. Well, I guess I've been doing some form of acting in commercials for quite a long time, and in fact, it was only in, I think, 2011 that I quit, and I didn't want to do it anymore because it's not really fun. The auditions are kind of miserable, and you often have to drive across town and you know, the commercial acting world is where I think every actor that wanted to be in TV and film and casting director ends up. And so everybody's always, I think, trying to inflate it to more than it is. It's not really that fun. And so I was done and I said, you know, no more. And then right when I quit, my agent sent me this email saying, hey, here's a request for an audition for six spots for Volkswagen. And I thought, all right, it's six spots. That seems like a good job. I'll go audition. And I just didn't give a damn whether I got it or not. I wasn't dismissive of it, but it just allowed me to just go in there and play. And I think that's the biggest lesson. If you don't, you know, give these things the weight or you're not desperate for anything, you end up doing a better job and then ended up getting that. And it turned out to be 30 some commercials over, I don't know, three or four years. I can't remember, but it was a dream job and it was really, really fun to do. And it kind of restored my faith in that world, at least. What's a Tiguan? Well, it's a half tiger, half iguana creature, and you've never heard of one because they don't exist. Kind of how a versatile turbocharged compact SUV didn't exist until the Tiguan came along. But this Tiguan offers a 200 horsepower turbo engine and something else that doesn't exist standard in compact SUVs. This. So now that you've heard of a Tiguan, believe in them. They're very real. Yeah, now in Deutsch, one of the great uh, creative shops. Yeah, and they were such nice people too. It was really nice to see people involved in advertising that kind of, they were creative, nice people before they were really just shilling or trying to sell anything. I mean, they, they had a job to do, but they were nice people. I got to know them all fairly well, too. That was nice. Great job. So, all right, we got a lot of ground to cover. So let's talk a little <laughs> bit about Pistol Shrimps Radio. <laughs> this Super Ego and Pistol Shrimps Radio are so near and dear to my heart because they're just so stupid and you know kind of worthless in a wonderful way so pistol shrimps radio happened because my wife started playing basketball my my wife now but my then girlfriend started playing basketball on a women's rec league basketball team in la and i don't know how i got the idea but i just said to my buddy mark why don't we take a remote podcast recorder and we'll do you know old kind of classic play-by-play color commentary like two sports experts even though I know zero about basketball and we'll just make it up as we go along and it just kind of evolved into an absurdist thing where we call the game and the shots and the points and the scores but we're just rambling the whole time and going on tangents and uh, we did that for years and even recorded an episode last week where it's now become kind of like answering email questions because it just brought along with it enough people that it's kind of like a podcast uh, family with listeners where there's just so many inside references and stuff that there's just now a language and stuff that we can speak and then emails come in and we do those episodes and they go out and hopefully one day we could do a basketball game again. Fantastic. And you just hit on something that I think is really centric to the rise of podcasting. And that's the passion of the fan base. Yeah. And they are, are not like any other genre of media. You don't find that, that there's no group of people like that for the newspaper world or the magazine world. Even I would argue the television world, the passion and 
in-depth knowledge that your fan base has, the fans of people like Scott Ackerman and Paul F. Tompkins and other, you know, your contemporaries who are the real, you know, pioneers, if you will, of the modern genre. Talk about that passion and what is it about the medium that fosters that? I've never seen any studies on this, but I've long thought that it's simply because it's so intimate and in both physically and just kind of emotionally. So I don't mean physically in a sensual way, but I'll explain this. So you're putting in headphones, meaning you're, you're basically cutting out the rest of the world and making a direct line from your brain to the audio of these people who are having wonderful conversations and chatting. And you start to forget that you're not in that room with them and they become default friends. And you realize, I, I've called it a one-way friendship. You start to develop one-way friendships with podcasters. It's happened to me. I used to listen to a number of podcasts where I felt like, oh, I know these people so well, we're friends. But then you remember, they don't even know I exist. <laughs> And you do it on a week-to-week basis, and you're cutting out the rest of the world, and you can't help but become strangely attached. And you know, 99 out of 100 times, that's a healthy thing. Sometimes you can find that there's a, you know, you there's obsessions and everything. But I don't think it happens to TV and film because you're often watching that with someone else, so it's opening it up to the rest of the world. Music is about the only other thing I can think of when you're listening to music with headphones on in your own personal experience. But even that is a little bit more just emotional where the podcasting element is a little bit more intellectual. And, and I think it really imprints on you in that way. It's interesting point. Cause there is an intimacy to it. I, I think mm-hmm. you're right about that. And you become very attached to these shows. I, I am relatively new to them. I'd say I'm the last three, four, five years at the most, but I know what shows I like. I know when they come out. I know when there's a Patreon episode um, and you follow it very closely. I can't tell you the same of anything about any television show the same way you used to know Seinfeld was on Thursday or, (laughs) you know, it's really gravitated to the podcasting medium. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an interesting comment on our time. And I mean, if you really extrapolate it out, it's it's even maybe a little concerning that everybody's just going to disappear into their own inward forms of media. And are we really going to relate or are relations going to become these one-way friendships over the internet? So I've found that through podcasting and social media, especially in the last few years, I've had to just notch it back a little bit just to kind of keep my brain wired the right way. Because I did feel with all editing and consuming podcasts and social media, my brain was just focused on these screens and stuff. And it, it, it's like a, it's almost just like a thing that everybody has to watch on their own, like smoking in the old days. You know, I think that one day we're going to find that this stuff is strangely toxic. Even the good stuff, it's, it's oddly addicting and it's, it's weird to have to monitor that. Well, I I think the human connection, and that's where I've been to a a number of them up at uh, just for laughs in Montreal and and some of the other. That's why I think the live recordings of the podcast. I know you used to do live shows at the Largo. Um, uh, that stuff I think is great because that communal laughter yeah. you can't beat that when you're laughing that's with right. other people. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And even when we're recording like something super ego that's not live, we're still getting the response and laughter of the other people in the room, and that's vital really to performing it's almost i think it's virtually impossible to perform to do a performance without an audience and expect that to land even if you're doing it for a podcast and then sending it out i just can't imagine really doing character comedy work by yourself and putting it out and having it be any good it's possible but it's so nice to have the immediacy of someone in the room absolutely can we talk a little bit about i was there too yeah yeah absolutely that was a podcast I did uh, a number of years back, and it was interviews with people who had small but significant roles in classic films. So, like a stormtrooper from Star Wars, someone you know on the beach from Jaws, or I mean, that's even a little vague. But I don't know if you remember the movie The Untouchables. There's a famous scene sure. based on the the famous scene from Battleship Potemkin, a gunfight on the stair steps of the train station, and there was a woman with a a baby and a in a baby pram and it was falling down the stairs and I had her on just to talk about what it's like to shoot that scene on that day with those actors. And 
um, it was always a grab bag of who you were going to get and what they were going to be like, but it was a really fascinating conversations. And what I love about the medium is that it's the kind of thing where you can think of an, think of an idea over breakfast or a cup of coffee or in the shower and then go out and do it. And yeah, your career yeah. is, your career is clearly full of that where you can just see, well, Matt thought, Hey, that would be kind of cool and interesting and funny. And then you go and do it. I, I guess that's true. And I feel very fortunate for that to be the case and would encourage more, more people to try that because when you really think about it, there's nothing at all saying it shouldn't be that way. It should be that way for everyone. And I'm not saying everybody quits their day jobs. I've kept a day job teaching even up to this day because I always feel like I want to have something stable. But if you leave yourself just a little room to play, uh, it's the most rewarding thing. And then it often leads to work, which is the great sort of feedback loop. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to get to Conan, but let's talk a little bit about Andy Daly because that show is so funny. <laughs> I think he's one of the funniest, if not the funniest human being I have ever met. I adore him. I think my, I just sort of like, I'm so thankful that I get to regularly work with him because it, I'm just, I've become an audience member when we're doing characters together. I have to keep part of my brain rolling to do a character, but a large portion of my brain is just absorbing in the things he's saying and dying inside. Yeah, he so is, great. He is so funny. Really okay. is. So my take, and you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong here, is that when Conan started ideating the idea of Conan O'Brien needs a friend, Somebody on his team said, we better get somebody who actually knows what they're doing here, who can be the grown up, who can be the grown up in the room. Is that kind of what happened with you and Conan? I, I gather something like that, although his, the head of Team Coco is a friend of mine who actually used to run the Earwolf Network around the time I was doing, I was there too there. His name's Adam Sachs. And he has to be one of the most, if not the most capable podcast impresarios there is. So he couldn't have already been in better hands. And I think it was just my relationship with him. And he, he was the person that suggested I come in. And that was originally just as kind of a consultant thing, because I worked as Earwolf for, as a consultant to kind of help develop and build the show. And I just ended up sort of sticking around for every step of the process. And then that eventually led to recording and getting that done. And I don't remember the day that it, it was like, let's make this a permanent gig. I always suspect that they reveal it inch by inch because I'm someone that often runs from long-term projects. I don't like to be tied down. And uh, it just sort of happened and, and developed in that way. And, and then it, you know, stuck and continues to evolve to this day. But that opening segment and the chemistry with you and Conan and Sona, uh, I think that's the best part of the whole thing. Hey there. <laughs> Welcome to Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Why? Why are you laughing? I don't know. Your voice always gets to a point. I, because, I, can I say something? What happens, I think, I know what you're going to say, when I'm just talking in the moment, I'm myself. Yeah. But whenever you guys say, now it's time to start the podcast, I get in my head and I go, what do I do? I want Matt to do an what impression. Because I, I think he, he knows. Okay. So tell me we're going to start the podcast. Okay. You're Conan now. And I'll be, yeah. uh, I'll be Matt Gorley. I'm just put down my banjo and my <laughs> uh, antique felt hat. <laughs> <laughs> and my best Truman doll. Mm -hmm. um, here we go. Mm -hmm. Put that over there. Okay. And then, uh, Conan, you should probably start the podcast now. Silence, silence, quiet. Murder, murder. Murder, murder. I do say, why do I say murder all the time? Murder, murder. All right, so okay. then, okay, come on, Conan. And then you take like, I'd say 30 seconds and you just go quiet and still like you're meditating. And then you finally come out of it and go, eight registers deeper than your normal voice. Hello there. Welcome to Conan Brian's friend. Is it that bad? Is it that bad? I'm not done yet. Oh. The podcast where I, uh, I con people into being my friend and then you emerge into yourself. Because <laughs> it takes me. Yeah. It takes me a couple of. Oh, that's very nice to say. And that, that you know, happened organically. I was never meant to be a part of the show on mic. Uh, and I don't fully remember how and why I think it just evolved over time. And, you know, um, just came out of necessity of both Sona and I having to defend ourselves from the, you know, verbal dragon that is Conan O'Brien. Oh my gosh. And I would think over the course of the past 18 months or so as, as we've all been 
you know, sort of locked down, if you will, and we're not locked down completely anymore, thank heaven. But um, I would think that that connectivity that that gave you was very helpful to you in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was really, really nice to be able to work during quarantine, especially when so many people were not able to. I was very thankful for that. And it was just coming at the right time when the podcasting world was able to transition to home recording so easily. I had been doing it in various ways throughout all of my podcast career, but even guesting on other people's podcasts just like this had been doing for years. It just wasn't widespread. And it was the quarantine that and Zoom that made everybody understand that you could do this regularly. So even though Conan's back in the studio with guests in the studio, I'm still Zooming in. Um, and so are some of the other people that work on the show. I don't know when we'll go back to all being in the same room again, because Sona also just had twins and she's on maternity leave. I'm about to go on paternity leave. They're building new studios. And I think once all of those things have you know, figured themselves out, we'll be back together in the same room. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's a, such a great, great show. And as is the new Thursday edition, was there any particular moment, Matt, working with Conan, who's such a brilliant interviewer and so funny, was there anything that didn't make it to the air that was like really funny that you look back and was like, oh my God, that, I can't believe that just happened or he said this or she said that? Oh boy, very, very few things don't make it to air and they're never because they're not funny. I, uh, he, he he just always delivers. I, I know, and a lot of other comedy podcasts will do multiple tries at things. I think maybe there's been one or two of the segments or the intros that we recorded and just went, ah, let's not use that. And it was more like, let's stop in the middle and start again. Cause we just weren't talking about something perhaps that was all that interesting, but his hit rate is impeccable. It really is. Yeah, no, there's, there's never a clunker. So what else is on your plate, Matt? What else would you like to do? You've, you've created your own shows. You've been a guest on every podcast of note. Um, <laughs> I know you're about to become a dad, but what else is swirling around in that creative, fertile mind of yours that we can look you know, to the future well, swirling is an apt uh, description because I, th I think of it more as a swamp of a mind because, yeah, there's a lot of things bubbling up, but boy, they really get mixed together. I spread myself a little thin sometimes, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I've um, been working on an album with my band called Townland, and we just mixed that. I'm very excited about that because it's something so removed from podcasting and comedy. It's not funny it's not overly serious or anything it's just straightforward music and that's been just kind of a new well i've i've done that for a long time but just doing it at this level has been a really fun new experience um and then uh my wife and i are about to collaborate on a podcast that we just finished the deal on for audible um I don't know how much I can say about it now, but let's just say it's about the inner workings of a specific type of work that both of us did and the behind the scenes stories involved with that. Okay, great. Yeah, well, so look, look, look forward to that. And uh, are you surprised, Matt, or what's your take on where podcasting has evolved as a business? You see these deals people are signing with the Spotify's and the iHearts and the Sirius XM and astronomical numbers. And uh, my immediate take when I see something like this is, I, I don't know how they're ever going to get their money back. Uh, yeah. Are you surprised by that growth and the economics of the business? I guess I am, yeah. I'm not surprised by the thought that it might look like a loss because I think that's exactly what it is. They're kind of the old school brand of lost leaders. So a Amazon and signing the podcast Smartlist for what was it, something like $80 million dollars what you're probably not seeing is that there's also first look deals where they curate other podcasts. And not only that, that's just bringing people to Amazon. Everything is in service of getting people to just shop on Amazon. I don't mean to be cynical about it, but what better loss leader than a super popular podcast to bring people to your website where you then sell everything under the sun. Um, so yeah, that part of it is, was probably inevitable. Um, the money part of it, uh, is what it is. To me, I think the part that bums me out a little bit is the self-importance that now comes along with it because so many people are involved, agents, managers, executives. The time it took 
to close a recent podcast deal we did was longer than in television deals I've been involved with. And that to me is absurd. And also just the overthinking and the the design by committee on an, on a medium form that should be just do it, just wake up the morning and try something. If it doesn't hit, it's lost in the ether. Who cares? But the best stuff is going to come out of the unfettered stuff. I think to a certain degree, but just the over analyzing and the metrics and the focusing now that's being applied to this business doesn't bode well. Luckily, it's still just an at-home interface. So everybody can continue to do their own thing on their own. And I think the best of those somehow still will rise to the top, even though all the resources are behind the powerhouses now. And I say that as someone that works for one of the powerhouses, I, I get it, you know. Yeah, but I think the democratization of the technology will protect the medium somewhat. I hope so. Uh, and I remember years ago, we had Ed Byrne speak at Advertising Week with the Tribeca Film Festival. This was about 10 years ago. And he was talking about the democratization of technology and camera technology and that you know anybody could go out and make a film now, whereas you used to have to have you know, millions of dollars to buy the right, yeah. right gear. And yeah. podcasting, you know, a hundred bucks, you're in business. It's amazing. And I, I think it's pro- probably the only podcast of mine we haven't mentioned. This podcast I do with the actor Paul Rust, with Gorley and Rust, we did explore doing that on networks. In fact, it used to be on the Stitcher network for Stitcher Premium. But then along comes Patreon, which is a listener subscribed and supported podcasting platform. And that has been so much better than we ever could have gotten as far as a deal with a network goes. Plus, none of the headache. We're completely unmonitored. We get to do things entirely independently. Yeah, I I have some of the production duties, but that's built into what we kind of, how we structure everything. And it's, uh, it's really a revelation and it depends on the podcast. Some of them are perfect for that. Some are perfect for networks. It's it's podcast to podcast, but that's been really wonderful. Oh, great. Well, Matt, this was such a joy to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And every good luck and good wish for the baby, for you and Amanda. And uh, you'll be out out of, out of commission for a while? I believe so. That's the plan. And I, I hope it to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> great. And I'll touch base with you after October 8th to exchange thoughts on No Time to Die. I'm really looking forward to it.